Escape velocity. Welcome to episode 27, 27 of Escape Velocity Radio. Derek, you're one of the hosts. I'm the other one. I'm Chris. Derek, Hi. how are you doing today? I'm doing not too bad. It's December. Weather sucks. You can ask me how I'm doing? No, don't care. Wait a minute. How are you doing, Chris? Oh, not bad. Somebody just, a friend of mine just accused me of uh, hiding beer in the basement, uh, <laughs> implying that I'm an alcoholic or something. <laughs> fucking, I'm not. Didn't accuse no friend. Yes, you did. You said, are you, you hiding? Anything? Are you hiding beer in the basement? You said it was fifty percent a joke. It's not hidden. It's in a fucking guitar case <laughs> where no one can see it. <laughs> not hiding anything. What's the big deal? Fucking happy hour in the North Atlantic. Give me an update on the hockey season so far. No, I hear you're doing well. Who told you that? I saw. I saw you tweet something about you being in first, or did I misread? Well, the we thing? we are first place in our division, which is one of the lowest divisions in the entire league. But you have some sort of individual player stats that rank you. Beave sent me a screenshot uh-huh. of the uh, of player stats. Okay, for just for your team, just for our team. Okay, and uh, I had to share it with the world because I am leading the team in uh, points. In action, that means goals, or do you get points it's for other things and assists. and assists? Yeah. Well, congratulations. I always knew you had it in you to be first in something someday. Yeah. Well, that's why we got the screenshot, just because by tomorrow it probably won't be. You'll won't sunk be first to fifth. Yeah. I'm pretty stoked, though. It's something I can show Francis, and he'll be like, wow, you're not a fucking alcoholic. It sits in the basement hiding beer in the guitar case. All right, let's get on with this fucking show. All right, up first, listener feedback. Derek, is this the most listener feedback we've ever received? Yeah, we got a ton of feedback. Uh, a lot of it really great. I think people were really stoked on our discussion with uh, Melissa, especially given the current context. Of course, I'm referring to uh, our discussion with Melissa Martin about consent and sexual assault in the context of the epic downfall of CBC radio personality, Gian Gameshi. Yeah, it was awesome. And uh, But we also got some critical feedback. We did. Yeah. So I think to start, for those of you who listened to the episode early on, you know, our our eager listenership in the first few days, you may have heard a couple of mock trigger warnings, uh, kind of jokey. Was there a couple or one? There were two. Oh, that's doubly unfortunate. Yeah. I think these were just failed failed attempts at injecting some humor into a heavy episode. Yes. but Ian, for those of you who don't know uh, what trigger warnings are, these are essentially sort of disclaimers uh, put in front of content when what is about to be discussed might have the potential of bringing up past trauma for someone who's listening. And it's most often used in the context of sexual assault. So obviously, obviously, on a show discussing sexual assault it is likely in poor taste to make jokes about trigger warnings. Us do something in poor taste? Yeah, I know. It's unheard of. Um, So we agreed wholeheartedly with that that feedback that those were 
stupid and uh, we removed them uh, from the episode and reposted it so uh, you probably only heard that if you listened in the first uh, few days so that was the first criticism but a more interesting criticism we received one which frankly is going to make us look like dummies but I have to say dovetails quite nicely with something Melissa was trying to drive home during the discussion last month came in the form of a question that can be summarized thusly if you guys me and Derek that is are so against sexual assault why did your old record label G7 Records release two records which featured a member who you knew committed a sexual assault in 1997 especially when the survivor of that assault explicitly asked you not to that was the question so I think that's a pretty reasonable question the records being referred to in this question are the Swallowing Shit Anthology, which was released in uh, 2000, the year 2000, I believe, and the Head It's Concrete Anthology, which was released as a download, at least, uh, in the year 2007. And, and just to be clear, and perhaps a little defensive, by the time the Head It's Concrete recordings actually came out, it was our understanding that some form of mediation and restorative justice had taken place in the intervening years and I mean as it turns out as we now know um, apparently never happened and as I've said elsewhere it was it was certainly convenient or expedient to believe otherwise to believe that that had happened so there's probably a lesson in there somewhere for starters so obviously this doesn't explain the existence of the first record, the Swallowing Shit record that came out in uh, the year 2000. And this this is the part that I think dovetails so nicely and ends up actually being a really useful follow-up to the last episode, as I mentioned, in terms of driving home one of Melissa's main points. Because we hadn't talked about this. You and me hadn't talked about this in, in literally 14 years, partly because the record label doesn't exist, obviously, anymore, partly because we thought this had all been resolved, and partly... T- partly because it was just an ugly memory but now we've you know in the past few weeks having been compelled to revisit this whole thing and recall you know talk about our rationalizations at the time for putting it out uh i think our takeaway is that we we didn't get it we just didn't get it back then no we didn't and we didn't see us releasing this record as an endorsement of one person's behavior but more as like a documentation of uh, a local music project which spanned six or seven members and you know which had actually uh, recorded and disbanded before the assault took place i think they no they disbanded after the assault oh did they i think so okay i I think the fact we had over five thousand unrefundable dollars tied up in cds that were already being manufactured at the time probably also played into our thinking as well it's a crass rationalization but if uh, anybody out there's ever run a record label into the ground uh they will know that that had to be that had to have been a factor yeah and you know i think another thing too is that we kind of felt like we were being asked to be kind of arbiters of community justice in this regard which freaked us out because we didn't know we didn't feel equipped Uh, to do that again these are just rationalizations like they're not really good reasons uh, on the path to making a correct decision 
again, this is just to grapple with where our heads were at 14 years ago. But it also wasn't something that we treated flippantly. You know, like we certainly did not want to exacerbate uh, any trauma. And this was the subject of many collective meetings, for sure. But ultimately, in the end, we just, we made the wrong call. And uh, I also seem to remember that none of us were very happy uh, with what we decided in the end. No. uh, Which was to just move ahead with the record and to post an arm's length non-apology apology on our website uh, alongside it but that's what we did you know it seems it seems obvious now that those rationalizations don't hold up because by releasing that record those records we were effectively contributing uh, to a climate in which offenders are sheltered from accountability and women are silenced and I think we just framed the question entirely wrong back then, and, and we missed the bigger picture. Yeah, we were confused. We were fucking confused. And, you know, I still am, to be honest, a little bit. And I reserve the right to be uh, somewhat confused and perhaps not as utterly certain as many others seem to be about how things should have played out in the wake of the original assault. But having said that, I think removing the records from, from distribution is the right move right now. And that is exactly what we've done um, as of a couple of weeks ago. And we've also issued an apology for not doing that 14 years ago, like we should have. Um, but, you know, just to back up a bit, I think the problem underlying all of our thinking back then was that based on what uh, to us seemed to be the mutually agreed upon understanding of the events in question, we were, um, or I was anyway, frankly confused at this being called a sexual assault because it didn't match my preconceived notion of what was included on the continuum of sexual assault that had no doubt been fed to me by TV and movies and media or whatever. That's what I meant when I said this is a useful follow-up to the episode because most of us don't actually know what consent really means and what sexual assault really is. We think we do, but I think most of us really don't. Yeah, because like now, having spent more time in recent years learning from others about this stuff, you know, like our conversation with Melissa being a case in point, I can see now that this was indeed sexual assault. But, you know, when we talk about people, quote unquote people, being misinformed or uneducated about consent and assault, like we're not talking about like the unwashed masses, like we're talking about ourselves too. Because we're all stewing in this culture, for better or for worse, and uh, none of us are immune to it. I am unwashed. Yeah, it's a good example. Uh, as much as we felt defensive, I think, when this feedback first rolled in, you know, it's good that it did. It's a cautionary tale starring Chris and Derek. So aside from us being dummies, what's our takeaway from all this? Fucking brush up on what uh, consent really means and what constitutes sexual assault. I mean, if we had a do-over, I'd be making a beeline for the local sexual assault crisis center and I'd be learning about, you know, local mediation and restorative justice initiatives. That's, That's what I'd do. Get this in the hands of people that know what the fuck they're doing. Otherwise, you end up like us getting fucking clowned on your own fucking podcast. And in many ways, this is actually a perfect uh, and an important time to do this work in deepening your understanding of this stuff. Because 
like we're ending a year right now that's been rife with news of sexual assault and these conversations yeah. are happening and i think it's important to use this as an opportunity to listen and to learn rather than getting defensive and digging in your heels uh so check the show notes for some uh good relevant links regarding consent sexual assault and restorative justice there was a uh an incident where a police had shot a black man in the back and then went and planted a gun next to him and said that the guy had drawed a gun on him, which we found out after the investigation, the guy didn't have no gun. Police had shot him in cold blood. Cold blood. And then the news. Wake up, nigga! The police shot another nigga today in the South Bronx. Wake up, nigga! And his only weapon was his wallet. Derek, do you think anybody is better positioned than you and I? Two middle-aged white fellas sitting in a basement. Speak middle-aged, speak for yourself. I'm not quite there yet. Yes, you are. I got a few years before I'm middle-aged. Not if you die when you're 60. Yeah, I'm planning on living till I'm 98. Well, then you're just a burden on the tax system. 101 even. I'll be objecting to your life as a taxpayer. <laughs> is there anybody better qualified to speak about black America than us? Two Canadians? Probably not. I think we're the most qualified. If there is someone more qualified, we haven't bothered to reach out and contact them (laughs) on this episode. Due to time constraints, I'm leaving right away. So So it's left to us. Well, of course, we're talking about specifically Ferguson, St. Louis, Missouri. As a point of origin, it seems like there has been this spate of high profile police killings of unarmed, of unarmed black men extrajudicial killings in uh, the united states of america as of late it started with eric garner uh who died after being held in an illegal chokehold for about 20 seconds did that did that predate michael brown yeah that was in july and uh this was by a police officer named daniel pantaleo and that actually this is the most recent uh, as of right now in uh early mid-december that's the most recent outrage because he was not indicted for this extrajudicial killing of this unarmed man who was uh, selling, who was accused of selling loose cigarettes on right. the street. It's insane. And then followed in August, uh, I think perhaps most famously uh, right now, uh, the shooting of Michael Brown. He was shot to death seven or eight times by Officer Darren Wilson uh, in Ferguson. White, white Missouri, officer. White officer. Another white a, guy. Another kid. He's 28, but fuck, he looks like a kid. He looks like a dumb fucking KKK kid, though. Yeah. Why do they all look like that? Why do they look like fucking dumbass fucking KKK pieces of garbage? I guess that's not relevant. (laughs) Not really. But it... Oh, well. So do I, I guess. And he was also, uh, you know, uh, Darren Wilson, uh, the grand jury in Missouri, they decided not to indict him, which is not even... It's not even to say that they decided not to... It's not like they decided, oh, you didn't do it. They decided we shouldn't even go forward with a trial. We shouldn't even go forward into conducting the routine investigation of well, a homicide. A, a grand jury is a routine investigation, but it happens in secrecy. It happens in secret, yes. Uh, and, so, the, and all they were decide, deciding is whether to indict him. So if he had right. been indicted, then he would have had a lawyer and they would have gone to an actual trial. Uh, you know, something that you thought that you would think you might like to see in a case like this yeah. uh, that is extremely controversial and where it is seemingly obvious 
that he had no case to empty his weapon into this man. And if you didn't do it, why yeah. not go through the process and show him you didn't do it instead of just fucking letting him off scot-free? Yeah, as a cop, as someone who is in this esteemed position of power in society. Well, of course, the, I mean, that speaks to the history of non-indictments for police officers versus the rest of the population. Yeah, which is basically they're never indicted. Never indicted. For all intents and purposes. While people, civilians, citizens are always indicted. And there's also, just to finish the, the recent spree of insanity that, that we've been made aware of through the media and through social media, um, there's the case of Tamir Rice uh, yeah. just recently, just the other week, who is a 12-year-old kid in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, shot dead by uh, two cops, uh, Timothy Lehman and Frank Garmbach. On a playground. On a playground, uh, literally two seconds after their vehicle pulled up in front of him. He apparently had a toy airsoft gun, and uh, they weren't going to give more than two seconds to (laughs) assess the situation before shooting a 12-year-old kid dead. It's insane. We can predict what the outcome will be of any investigation into the conduct of those officers, much like... In all the other cases, put them on a desk job for a while, bring them back a year later. And you can also, you know, trace this back to, I mean, something that which I don't think we ever even talked about on this show, which was another widely publicized incident, which was, of course, the Trayvon Martin event in 2012, where he was, uh, he was murdered by vigilante George Zimmerman in a uh, suburban uh, Florida neighborhood. And in that case, he was charged. He was brought to trial, but he was not convicted. Right. But these are just these are just the most recent high profile incidents. Uh, America is a deeply uh, racist country uh, founded on uh, genocide and then slavery. So thanks for the news update. So this is uh, some would say that this is a continuing legacy expressed in this case through the uh, militarized arm of the state. Yeah, I think for me, a guy watching all this unfold, who's kind of ever since I at least at least ever since Rodney King uh, has understood racism is alive and well or in Winnipeg J.J. Harper you know that was one of my first exposures to the idea of institutional racism in Canada and that was that was the the murder of a police shooting of J.J. Harper an indigenous man in Winnipeg uh, in probably 1988 maybe earlier I can't even remember now but it was there was an inquiry the cop got off he eventually committed suicide, the cop. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Constable Cross was his name. But even for me, somebody who has long held the view that institutional racism exists, I think this series, this spate of cases, highly publicized cases, has even made me realize more so that the racism isn't just, it's not just holdovers from a previous era of segregation and slavery. It's the same one with a few modulations of where people can go, what water fountains they can use, you know, all that kind of thing. It's the same shit. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember, too, that, you know, we're talking about this recent spate. But, you know, according to this uh, one study by this group called Operation Ghetto Storm, they analyzed state and vigilante security guard uh, killings of Hmm. uh, black men in the United States uh, over 2012. And they released this report, you know, that's basically saying... In 2012, every 28 hours, a black man, woman, or child was murdered by police or vigilante law enforcement. Hmm. So this is this demonstrates a pattern. It's not just about these recent highly publicized killings. And I think there's two fundamental issues at play that people are talking about. I think they're both important, but 
I think that it's easy to get sidetracked on the one, which is there is this issue of highly aggressive, highly militarized police forces and a police culture within the United States that within it contains individuals that are racist, but even contains individuals who are not racist, you know, or who are otherwise enlightened. And perhaps these forces are deployed on all, in all sorts of situations. You see it when they're deployed against protests or the Occupy encampments or whatever else. And that is one aspect of the issue that is important. Radley Bilko wrote this book called The Rise of the Warrior Cop, which I think is a, an important read for people interested in this stuff that covers this history of the, the increasing militarization of the police forces in the United States. But I think like you're saying, the bigger issue, the main issue is that the police apparatus in, in the United States serves to protect the interests of... To protect the order. To protect the order. And, and the and, order and, is racist. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a deeply racist country and the police serve a function in that. So you can put, say, body cameras. People are talking about these body cameras. Uh, Barack Obama has pledged $75 million now to equip uh, state and local police forces with these cameras. Yeah. To what end? Eric Garner was filmed. Tamir Rice was filmed. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think there's, I think there is an argument to be made that it could, like there has been, there have been some studies done in some areas that show a decrease in aggressiveness in, uh, in police behavior and, and a decrease in complaints against police uh, in these kind of pilot study areas. And Obviously, having it's hard to take it seriously though when you see Eric Garner choked to death on video. Yes, the guy doesn't get indicted, and the guy who shot the video does get indicted. Yeah, but without the video, no one would ever even know about it. No one would be talking about it, right? Still, yeah. Come on, it's not the it's not the answer. It's not the no. it's not the wholesale answer. I don't I don't think it's unuseful. Maybe it could be. There's a, we'll put an, a link in the show notes to this one piece in the Atlantic that talked about it a little bit and talked about these studies. It's basically saying it's too early. The verdict is not in yet on the effectiveness of these cameras and they're very expensive to deploy. And certainly if they were to be used as some sort of way to shut down any further discussion about, you know, policing in America, oh, put the cameras on or racism in America or racism in America. Obviously that's no good, but, but yeah, that is the fundamental issue. This is, this is symptomatic of a wider rot in the society. For me, it was helpful to, to get a sense of the scale of what's going on. I read an article in the wall street journal that radical publication. My favorite newspaper. Your favorite newspaper. They found from 2007 to 2012 that there were 550 police killings, extrajudicial killings of civilians, not documented by the FBI. And when I first read that, I thought, wow, 550 people killed in just five years in America. And then I, I realized, oh, I haven't finished reading the paragraph. <laughs> and that was 550 They weren't that weren't counted. The actual total was more near 1,800 people. Yeah killed by cops yeah 1800 how many people have been killed by al-qaeda in that same time period yeah or isis or whoever the fuck that we're bombing yeah why don't we fucking bomb yeah, the, the cops the enemy number one you had tweeted out a couple weeks ago something to the effect of at this point if you live in a black community it almost seems like what more cause do you have to preemptively you yeah know? and people white white north america says well, if you got nothing to hide, you don't run. Why are these guys running? But fucking look at all the killings. The only reasonable thing to do when a cop enters your field of view in those communities is fucking run. Yeah. Go inside, get all your kids inside, barricade yourself inside the house, or preemptively neutralize the threat. The threat. Yeah. Which is, I mean, if you look at what the cops are saying, 
when they are excused as having committed a justifiable homicide uh, or, you know, or not indicted, it's they're saying, I was scared. I was terrified. This person was threatening. Well, what do you think all these fucking people are saying about cops? Even I, even I, when I see a cop in Winnipeg, I get scared and I have nothing to really fear. Yeah. It made me, you know, we don't really, we don't do any toy guns really in the house as much as possible, but Francis has fashioned his own guns, of course, my (laughs) five-year-old over the course of his five years and enjoys blowing people's heads off with him. But his Greek grandfather brought him a toy gun from Greece (laughs) that looks like an authentic vintage flintlock pistol. Right. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, fuck, I don't know about this, man. Living in the city, kind of a paranoid thought. It's, you know, he's a little white kid running around this kind of, you know, nice downtown neighborhood. And then I saw the Tamir Rice video. First thing I did... I put that musket and hit it up in the rafters. Hopefully Francis isn't listening. But I hit it because I don't, you know, fuck, cops are fucking, I don't know what the hiring process is with cops in North America, but fuck. Yeah. They just blow anybody away. They're trigger happy and racist and stupid and fucking, fucking fuck cops, man. Where are all the cops coming out to stand, you know, to speak out against this? Yeah. If not all cops are bad or whatever, where are they? Yeah. It's fucking bullshit. Well, and that, it's also part of a, I think, a problem with the the sort of fraternity culture of police in, in wide swaths of North America and elsewhere. You know, this whole stick together, we have to get each other's backs. Um, well, that's, and that's, that's why you have these occasional, you know, whistleblowers who leave police forces. And I was reading a piece the other day of a guy, he was a cop for five years. He wrote this article about the insane shit over the court like starting from like week two he's seen the craziest shit he's reporting stuff to his supervisor he just gets shut down shut down and then eventually he just leaves it's like well i guess the dreams i had from the time i was a kid of being this like stalwart in the community who helped people and protected people this idea that we have of police which which i fully support the the idea of like the people you entrust to mediate the, to mediate conflict, conflict between to help people citizens. when they need it that is the idea but this is yeah that's not that's not the facts on the facts on no. the ground are the primary objective of the police are to maintain the order and the order is to keep the rich rich and keep everybody else in their place that is the order they, that is their prime function you mentioned the thing about like ISIS or Al Qaeda I want to point people to this uh, Tanahisi Coates article in the Atlantic which which is pretty funny and pretty in, insightful it's I guess I guess Rudy Giuliani ex is he ex-governor ex-mayor but he I guess he was on some show or some fucking speaking somewhere and talking about I don't know why you're focusing on all you're focusing on these this minority of black men who are killed by police what about all the black men who are killed by people in their own communities right so he wrote this piece saying why is no one talking about American on American crime and talking about how every year, you know, nearly 15,000 Americans are killed by other Americans. So basically this is five 9-11s perpetrated against Americans every year. You know, why are we talking about Al Qaeda? Why are you talking about terrorism? Why are you talking about ISIS? It's the same logic. And obviously uh, it doesn't make sense because you're talking about distinctly different phenomenon. But also in those cases, those guys fucking go to jail. Yeah, they're the, actually the cops, prosecuted. The cops don't go to jail. Yeah. It's, a, it's the there's you cannot compare the two things. Yeah, if the cops are all going to jail, then we could you okay? Well, yeah, yeah, okay. I see your point, but they don't go any. They no, don't go it's, to jail. it's basically killing with impunity. 
Just one more stat to get a sense of scale. Just going back to scale for a second. From a website called Vox.com, they point out that black Americans make up 13% of the U.S. population. And the FBI's data shows that 32% of people killed by officers in 2012 were black. 52% were white. So if you just look at that stat, Mm -hmm. oh, well, more whites get killed by cops. But when you consider that 60% of America is white... It's double the rate. The, the it's crazy. Black it's, Americans it's staggering. Are being double the rate. Yeah. Even, even to someone as enumerate as me, that stood out like, holy fuck. Yeah. So just, just to give you a sense of scale, that's crazy. So what do we do about this? Don't <laughs> worry, me and Derek are on it. What do we do about it? Stay I don't in know. the basement. Throughout the States, there have been widespread protests over this. Well, for, for months in the case of Ferguson, Missouri. Um, but now with the Darren Wilson verdict, uh, with the Tamir Rice killing, with the Eric Garner uh, non-indictment. Yeah, a lot of solidarity. Lots of solidarity going on. Dave Zirin had a piece I saw just uh, the other day about how prominent sports, black sports right. figures are now. Wearing you know, those t-shirts that say, I can't breathe, which are the last words of Eric Garner. Yeah. So people are paying attention. And I think if there's one, I think there's one place we can point people, especially Americans, to check out. It's the website blacklivesmatter.com. Uh, which was this is also behind the Black Lives Matter hashtag on Twitter. Uh, and this was started by uh, three women, Alicia Garza, Patrice Kulugers, and Opal Tamedi, uh, after the Trayvon Martin killing and mm-hmm. the George Zimmerman non-verdict. And they call their organization or the movement uh, a call to action and a response to the virulent anti-black racism that permeates our society. So you can check that website out. And uh, they've got a lot of good resources on there, uh, other links to check out. But yeah, I mean, it's fucking, it's a fundamental problem in in, in America and in in Canada too. I mean, we have the same fundamentally racist underpinning for our society with indigenous people in Canada that, you know, they've got it doubly in the States because they have an indigenous population upon which they have foisted a genocide and then also an imported slave population, which then transmutes into this seemingly perpetual underclass and it is fucked for me the takeaway is that it's not about bad apples or mistakes in the system it's about institutional systemic racism there was a quote from josh harper who you might remember was one of the shack seven defendants who spent time stop stop huntington animal cruelty right there's an animal rights activist who spent time behind bars and what he had said on Twitter, he said, I did time with self-proclaimed Nazi gang members, and I swear their brand of racism was less troubling than what I see on Facebook every day, close quote. Presumably in reference to white America commenting on mm-hmm. all these events happening. And it's, if you think about it, it's like, yeah, that's, you know, it's it's a more troubling form of racism. The, the banal, yeah. mundane, everyday, I'm not racist, but this, that kind of shit. Well, and it's funny that he's talking about Facebook because- if you live in sort of a Twitter bubble, you know, where you, you choose all these people to follow based perhaps on yeah, it looks political like, or whether, you know, you think, oh my God, the world is exploding. We're on the cusp of change. Yeah. But then you go on Facebook where maybe most of the people that you're seeing stuff from are like old friends or, or extended family and their friends. You, you see the majority of what is going on in people's minds laid bare, spewed from their mouths through their fucking disgusting fingers yeah. onto their keyboards. That's what I can't go on f- Facebook. I can barely be on this fucking Twitter thing. Yeah. 
I can't take it anymore. I can't take, I don't think I can take social media anymore. Just, I think you should quit. You should quit social media. Why? You don't like my tweets? I don't like your tweets. I thought my tweets were fucking awesome. So yeah, we've got some links uh, in the show notes. If you want to read more about all this fucking insanity, maybe yeah. you don't. If you value your mental health, maybe you won't want to read about it. But you probably should because I've had some people through my own social media contacts or email address yep. who have expressed you confusion. know confusion confusion or skepticism about or preemptive well you better let's wait and find out what this tamir rice kid was up to you know yeah. th- that kind of maybe he deserved to be shot at 12 years old yeah like i think people somewhat not reasonably in like uh it's okay but reasonably is as in the society we're brought up in is invisibly blatantly racist mm-hmm. and blatantly elevates law enforcement to some mythical yeah an untouchable untouchable standard while everybody else is under the boot and if they're not white it's an unspoken mundane truth that well they must have done something yeah, yeah. so i know you're out there i know you're listening so let's try to look at this from a different perspective together except i'm not going to be with you when it happens i'm going to be drunk fucking slowly killing myself with bud light limes And apparently this segment was brought to you by Bud Light Lime. We used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. Go for main engine start. T minus 10. We must confront the reality that nothing in our solar system can help us. Nine. I've got kids, Professor. How long would I be gone? Eight. I'm asking you to trust me. Seven. Murph. You have to talk to me, Murph. Six. I need to fix this before I go. You have no idea when you're coming back. Five. Main engine start. Couldn't you have told her you were going to save the world? No. Four. When you become a parent. Three. One thing becomes really clear. Two. That's that you want to make sure your children feel safe. One. I think we had kind of agreed that we weren't going to do movie reviews again in the future after Noah. Did we? We agreed? Yeah. Why? I realized that you don't like any movies. I do so. I do like movies. No, you don't. I like the idea of movies. You like the idea of liking a movie, but yeah, but you, you never keep, follow. You through always with it. keep. You you always suggest we go see these Hollywood movies. That's the problem. I watch lots of non-Hollywood movies, but well, not with me. You don't. No, I don't. You never suggest let's go watch this non-Hollywood movie about something interesting. You always say let's go watch this fucking dumb movie. It's fun. I well. So why are we why are we talking about this? Last night we went and we saw Interstellar. Derek paid for me. Derek paid my way in to go see the movie Interstellar starring Matthew McConaughey. I was super excited about this movie. I think I think initially you were Yeah, I too. saw a preview and I, it looked interesting to me. Yeah. Because it hits on all of the themes that generally I think you and I both love and yearn for in movies. Speculative fiction space travel earth catastrophe a general a general galactic thought experiment yeah intergalactic thought experiment in this case 
And so for people, I mean, most people have probably heard of this movie, but in brief, uh, it takes place in a unspecified future Earth time. Uh, the planet has been uh, seemingly largely depopulated due to uh, wide-scale food shortages uh, as a result of various climate and other unknown issues, blights and whatnot. Yeah, and then through a series of very likely events, Matthew McConaughey ends up piloting a spaceship to go find a new place for everybody to live. And that is that is essentially it. They managed to take that essential it and draw it out over three hours, I noticed. <laughs> Have you ever been on a 24-hour flight to Australia? No, I haven't. There's this point in a 24-hour economy class. You're not actually on a plane for 24 hours. In, in transit and on the plane for 15 hours to Australia. In economy class, uh, there's this point in the trip with about six hours remaining in the flight where you you reach this psychological precipice where you would actually prefer that the plane experienced a catastrophic mechanical failure <laughs> in conjunction with the most egregious human error in the cockpit combined with a radical extremist terrorist attack <laughs> plus sitting beside the guy who on the Greyhound bus cut that guy's head off. <laughs> rather than continue with the last six hours of the flight. That is how I felt during those three hours last night because I was so tired. Why didn't you just uh, nudge me and say, that's it? Oh, I thought of that every five... You must have noticed. I was, yeah, I was basically doing 360s in my chair. (laughs) So maybe it wasn't the best frame of mind for me to go see this movie. Right. But nevertheless... I mean, I, the the movie didn't relieve that stuff. It in, it induced a lot of it because it felt like a, the last six hours of a 24-hour in-transit intercontinental flight. I don't know if we're super interested in actually reviewing this movie. You like, but the I did movie. like it. Yeah, despite despite many, as with anything, one would see on a Hollywood movie screen. It is riddled with things that range between the annoying and the idiotic and the irresponsible but uh, that is to be expected terrible dialogue and uh strange but then what's what's the uh, i have to ask you i have to intervene here what with all that in mind with going into movies why why spend the money and why sit through it when you could get those concepts uh, presumably they're the the payoff for you are big concepts that are somehow intertwined into the movie but that's exactly it that's why it hits despite despite all these annoyances it hits all these notes for me that i just i cannot repel the attraction you know a, a combination of the visuals the the concepts i'd rather uh, read a synopsis no but, but you don't the get synop- the but syn- you don't get it you don't you don't get the it's an it's a it's an emotional connection with what is happening oh, I felt uh, in did the movie. you feel an emotional connection yes. with those characters not with the characters no not with the, well there's the odd time but it's just the overall it's the the scene where their ship is passing Saturn you know in absolute silence and uh, it's just that this there's I don't know to me it hit an emotional chord and there were all these moments in the movie where I felt that it's a feeling it, it of, it's a feeling of, of a, awe it reminded you of a time from childhood when you too passed by <laughs> Saturn in silence. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. You I didn't get you didn't get any of that. You were just eye rolling. No, well, I the concepts are interesting. The first 20 minutes I thought, "Oh, this is a little bit different than your average Hollywood movie." Mm-hmm. But fucking man, the cast in the first 10 minutes, oh, look who's the dad in the farm John Lithgow. For Christ's sake. <laughs> Oh, then who's the NASA? Oh, it's Michael Caine is the dad over here. It's unbelievable. And then it's uh, Anne Hathaway, Matt Damon. Yeah. Fucking, it's it's like a, a cast from a John Grisham courtroom drama novel that's, <laughs> that doesn't belong in this movie. It's, yeah. It's just, it's unbelievable. But I think that's now with Christopher Nolan, the director, that's kind of his MO is like, I want to take interesting ideas for movies and then I want to put them on the big screen with all of these like that's what he does why? every time all why? these big names, I don't understand what's the point because and he's, it, ruins, he's faced, it ruins it and he's faced a lot of criticism for it too I was seeing some stuff on Twitter the other day someone was talking about how because he's basically one of the most powerful directors now in Hollywood but he consistently has like the the diversity of his casts is pathetic uh, he's just always relying on these Michael big, Caine yeah it's like Big name, Michael A-list, Caine. white man actors, basically, across the board. Do you think Michael Caine even reads the script before he shows up? Do you think John Lithgow knows what the movie's about? It's unbelievable. These guys are just, they're in every fucking movie. That guy, what was that movie he was in the 80s with the big Sasquatch? Harry and the Hendersons. That's the only movie John Lithgow should be in, like a <laughs> bunch of sequels to that, because that's, that's how I picture him. That's on you, man. But the reason that I thought it might be interesting to talk about this is because of the concepts and how... I guess just asking the question why because I think this is a it's a recurring theme with me I think it's a recurring theme with you wanting to see and read these stories is explorations about space travel space colonization leaving earth the or the idea of other civilizations non earth non-human civilizations elsewhere and, and what their advanced capabilities might be all these things you know the interest in, you know, SETI and Carl Sagan's works, all this stuff, it all ties together, right? And it asks some big questions about what the utility of it is, why we care, whether this is a good thing or, or a distraction. Yeah, I thought there was about maybe 13 minutes in the whole movie that really addressed any, like really did that at all. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's all just rehashed from other movies. Yes, it is. It's all just, it's it's basically a mashup of 2001 Solaris contact and contact yeah so it doesn't really ask you any new questions it just poses them with a new cast of characters with a bunch of new special effects yes and I think it's I think it's not useful you know if someone could make the argument yeah but you're getting out all these crazy concepts to a mainstream audience but I don't they're not the the mainstream audience isn't watching this going hmm I think they're better off watching fucking Star Wars and then all the aftermarket stuff of the science of Star Wars. What is real? What is not? Right. Could Lando Calrissian really have <laughs> fired a laser in that near vacuum? You know, is st- Jabba the Hutt a biologically predictable being? Yeah, like you you leverage the popularity of this absurd thing set in outer space with lasers and gravity wells and warp drives and stuff like that to talk about science and big concepts because this does nothing but i think i don't know like i i know that uh like neil degrasse tyson for example he had this like tweet storm about the science of interstellar and he was uh excited about how for the most part they really focused on getting the science right in terms of space travel i mean 
to the degree you can when you're talking about flying a spaceship through a wormhole into another galaxy. Yeah, you just get into a body bag and then go underwater in a case and then you're good for two years. <laughs> it's good but, science. But but on the whole, compared to most movies of this caliber, they try to get... And I think that can trickle down a little bit into uh, into how people perceive things or their interest in in science or space or whatever. A little bit. I was thinking more about the big... The concepts, you right? Know, like, but those big concepts are better dealt with in numerous books. I agree. Most people don't read numerous books, though. But most people aren't going to think about these big concepts as as a result of this movie. No, probably not. But we are. So let's ask the question then. I, I guess as someone who does think about this stuff and who was thinking about the big concepts, you know, they're trying to focus on this thing about humans as fundamental explorers this theme the movie you know humans were born on earth but we weren't meant to die on it and yeah that stunk of american pioneers that's what yeah that's what i was thinking and how much different is that than carl sagan and saying like we're natural explorers we're going to go out of course it is our destiny to explore the universe this is what we do you know it's framed a little differently in sagan frames it much more eloquently uh, then and I think Matthew much, McConaughey but, sitting on a farm porch drinking a beer with his father-in-law. I think, but, it's, I think it's framed much, much differently. Carl Sagan... But isn't it fundamentally the same thing? No, no, no. Because Carl Sagan's wasn't exclusive of figuring out what's happening on here on Earth with human relationships, whereas Matthew McConaughey's was like, gotta get out of here. This is pathetic sitting here in a terraformed <laughs> flying saucer in space. We gotta do something. What are you talking about? You're in the most awesome... <laughs> fucking terrarium of all time and you ah this is disgusts me I'm getting out of here to fuck I'm gonna leave my daughter that the whole movie was based on me finding to go somewhere else <laughs> fucking unbelievable ending unbelievable sorry for the spoiler people that was ridiculous but I get what you're saying and even have you seen this video uh, that's going around that this guy made this Eric Vernquist this video called Wanderers mm-hmm this is that's cool it's pretty cool but it, it's like yeah it, it takes we'll put a link in the show notes he's a, i guess he's like a video composting effects artist or something and he's taking like real photographs and recreations of different areas of our solar system and superimposed people exploring those areas like it looks pretty cool but it's the same thing you're supposed to watch it with wonder think oh one day one day that'll be humanity we're gonna reach out mm-hmm. to this but you know but meanwhile fuck like how is that easier or more realistic than fixing fixing here. the but planet we're already on that that is the difference though between carl sagan's idea of the human drive to explore versus matthew mcconaughey's pioneerism or abandonment of this failed earth it's it's the same as remember when uh Stephen Hawking said, we have to, we have to colonize another planet and yeah. get off this one. And then Kim Stanley Robinson came out and said, that was a failed opportunity on Hawking's part because is it easier to terraform some distant planet somewhere else? That'll take like hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. Instead of resolving this already terraformed planet we're living on that we yeah. can actually breathe and eat and survive. It's crazy. It's, yeah. it's a crazy chasm between two ways of seeing space exploration. The other side of the coin that I think also applies to Sagan with like a movie like Contact or book like Contact and the whole SETI project is Interstellar was very much about they kind of lead you to believe like, oh, this is a whole thing. Alien aliens made this. But then again, with the human triumphalism in the end, they're they're kind of saying, 
No, we did all of this. We figured out. Even the wormhole? We evolved. Oh, they said that, right. We yeah. evolved to exist in five dimensions and we set this all up retroactively as opposed to the idea of this sort of um, alien saviorism where we're, we're waiting for aliens to come down and they're going to tell us how to do things. We're just this nascent life form, this nascent civilization who we need to be taught by our wise elders elsewhere in our galaxy and in the universe how to do things right. They're going to tell us how to fix our energy. They're going to save us from ourselves. They're going to tell us how to travel around the universe, which, you know, is also a trope. It's a trope. And, and it, it is also, there's a predilection there to, you know, oh, can't fix this ourselves. Like, it's no different than waiting for some other higher power to come down and, mm-hmm. and fix the problems. And it's also based on, there's different schools of thought but if you know if the drake equation says that there could be anywhere from like i think current estimates are anywhere from two to 280 million different civilizations within the milky way again it's like why where are they why aren't they here you know the whole fermi paradox Mm -hmm. where are all the other civilizations and it all that all ties back into fixing the planet as well right because one of the that's one of the ideas within the fermi paradox is the reason there are no other civilizations is because they either destroy themselves or they never existed they would be here what do they call they call it the great filter you know the idea is either that humans are we're either rare or we're first or we're fucked so we're either rare and that we're the only one we we've passed the great which seems incredibly unlikely incredibly unlikely but that's that's actually i was reading this uh We'll put, I'll put a link to this in the show notes as well, but there's this great article that was kind of breaking down the or contemporary thinking on all like whether there are other civilizations, whether we can actually whether we've passed this great divide where we are going to go on to colonize the the solar system or whether we're unique or whether we're just totally doomed. It talks about how astronomers and physicists has have this view that it's utterly absurd to think that we're the only civilization in the Milky Way. Well, maybe, maybe civilization, but life form. Or life, life form, but whereas biologists, they actually take the opposite view, that it's incredibly likely with the way that biology unfolds that, uh, like, how is it with the millions and millions of species of life on planet Earth, there's only one that has uh, language and that communicates... Well, that's not true. ...communicates culture outwardly. That we know of. That we know of. That's it. It's almost like the hallmark of evolution is that every creature is incredibly unique and has these unique characteristics. So it's it's pretty interesting. I, I think really I need biologists. I, I'd, I'd need to have that expanded upon from because it runs counter to just my gut instinct. Yeah. You read the article after I post it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. So either that we're we're unique, like you say, you you feel a lot of people feel incredibly unlikely, but that we're the only ones. Or that we're just the first ones. Other civilizations just haven't developed yet. They haven't gotten radio communications or long-term communication or space travel. Or that, you know, we're fucked. Like most, basically, most civilizations essentially destroy themselves before they are able to... If, if you go with the assumption that a civilization, a species which continues to uh, advance in terms of technological capabilities the ability to get themselves off of their home worlds if you assume that that is the case and that they will therefore do that and then eventually travel out to other systems then 
clearly there must be a point which most of them if not all of them reach that they destroy themselves before they can get to that point you know Perhaps. inherent in developing technology to do that is probably destroying yourself with a lot of assumptions before you get there about right. that life form or civilization even the assumption of what is a you know what's a civilization right you know i don't know i fucking don't know okay well so you are giving i would give it well, i would give interstellar one thumb up enthusiastic thumb or i don't know maybe this is controversial but i would have to give it one enthusiastic thumb up because i felt wonder and joy in my heart did you feel wonder and joy when out of nowhere matt damon fucking shows up no no that wasn't one of the parts you know what i would do if i was making the movie i would just get a good actor to play matt damon's part and use all that money you spent on matt damon to hire an a-list editor for the movie why do you need all those people why do you need all those matt damon and he wasn't even the funny thing about matt damon is that they never he was never advertised the movie opened and then it was a surprise yeah, when, when, the they, movie. when they opened up that body bag and he comes out of the water yeah you know that scientific way of keeping somebody frozen for 40 years or whatever it is i uh i thought is it is, that can't be that's not matt damon is it fuck if they open up another one is it going to be ben affleck <laughs> it was unbelievable unbelievable and then all of a sudden it's goodwill hunting yeah in another galaxy the other thing that really stood out like the whole there's a scene in the movie where matthew mcconaughey the main character is watching video messages from his children that were recorded over the course of 23 years that he's never seen before and he's getting very emotional did did it not remind you at all of the barf scene in team america <laughs> no it was so fucking ridiculous how hard he's crying as they keep snapping back to him I guess, well, we have fundamentally different personalities it because unbelievable. the first time that the first time I saw the movie, I saw that scene. I totally cried in that what? scene. Yes. Wow. Fuck. Did I told you, that totally hit me, man. The whole movie, the whole movie, Matthew McConaughey, it seemed like he had a teardrop on the end of his nose. The whole movie. <laughs> I was sweat. Well, he had sweat in it. He <gasps> but that was the whole point. That's their, what they were trying to do is inject this whole theme about family and, yeah, and yeah, love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the first person who loves that shit. The first person who loves that shit. It's so funny because as, we sat, as failed, we sat there, as we sat there uh, watching the terrible ads that had no sound before the movie started and we're talking about contact and you're talking about how... Yeah, you were how the, against how, it. How these scenes in, in contact, these like character development scenes with Jodie Foster as a kid you know how they hit home so hard for you and how they made you so emotional that, that, that is my those point those were done those were done so much more poorly what than they were in Interstellar that's crazy I, my point there was proven by this terrible fucking debacle of a movie Interstellar because you to make a Hollywood movie that gets the science right in quotation marks and still manages to have a powerful human component to it it's very rare for that to work. And Contact is the example of a movie where it actually worked. Solaris might be another one, although I can't really remember the if the science in that is actually good or not, but Solaris was a good one. 2001 was a good one. I would say Back to the Future was a better movie for science than Interstellar. <laughs> but but, but I, guess, I guess my my final verdict on this is the guy wanted... I, I appreciate his ambition he wanted to make 
he wanted this to be his Kubrick moment, his Tarkovsky moment, and he we ended up getting his M Night Shyamalan. Shyamalan. Yeah, there was a touch of M Night in that, which I kind of appreciated too. I God. God, thank you for paying for that movie. Is this the end of the of our movie reviews now? Yes. <laughs> is this the final nail this in the coffin? This is the final one until the next one. We didn't even talk about the robots. I love the robots. I know you didn't. I didn't know they were robots. Of course they were fucking robots. I thought it was like a fucking vending machine. It looked like a vending machine with a Vic-20 attached to the face. So Chris says Interstellar is less than stellar. <laughs> And Derek says Interstellar is a cosmic achievement. So here we are at the in the fourth installment of G7 Radio where we review past G7 Welcoming Committee Records releases chronologically. It's everybody's favorite part of the podcast, I'll bet. This month we are talking about G7004 by the band I Spy. This is a discography. It is an anthology. And it is called Perversity is Spreading. Ellipsis. Dot, dot, dot. It's about time! (laughs) Yeah, it's a... uh, The anthology includes their first release which was called The Excruciating Guide to Correct Behavior. Oh, that's right. Yeah. was the first one. It was actually part of a split release with Propagandy. Mm-hmm. And the second one was Revenge of the Little Shits, which was probably 1994 or 95. And then some odds and ends. And actually some demos that predate all that stuff that I recorded at Simon Hughes's house really? in River Heights. Okay, so we need to explain, and you're, you will do better Who's I Spy? Who is I Spy? Well, everybody knows who I Spy is. End of segment. The I Spy were a band from Regina, Saskatchewan, transplanted to Winnipeg in probably 1993. Todd Kowalski, Todd plays bass and propaganda. You know that. But he came to school to go to art school. Yep. Moved the band with him. Moved the band for some reason, moved with him. Bored in Regina, probably. I think if you live in Regina, Winnipeg is a step up. Well, it was then. At the time, anyway. At the time, Regina was like even further down the rabbit hole, I think, than Winnipeg was. So anyways, they moved into a house right behind mine, and they uh, proceeded to create a legacy for themselves. You're, of course, referring to their exciting live performances, their wicked awesome musical stylings, their, 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 their emotive, hard-on-sleeve lyrics. Yeah, they were, uh, they were an exciting band. It was really exciting. I will add that listening... To back to the record last couple of days. I don't think someone just hearing the record never having seen them could... They're not going to think they're as good. They're not going to appreciate them the same way. Probably not, but uh, they should try. Yeah. People should try because there's, there's, so much, there's so much going on in these recordings that you may not hear on first brush, especially not having been there. You know, yeah. that old story. Yes. Not having been there. But it, me listening to these to these recordings again this morning and over the course of the past few weeks, when I would listen in passing, I would almost have that feeling like, oh, this isn't quite what what it was. Mm-hmm. But then when I sat down and listened again, I was like, oh, this is everything that it was and more. And But it makes me lament our fucking total naivety and ignorance of of how to make recordings as bands back then 
we were all so into this like DIY scene that it kind of ruined the records. Cause you mean because they were recorded so piss poorly? Yeah, and we didn't we didn't know any better. Yeah. We didn't we didn't know what you had to do to make a good record. Mm-hmm. It's crazy if you were to look at how I Spy wrote their songs together. They're just jammed in some fucking kitchen or something with like amps that were about the size of a two four and uh, probably singing through a keyboard amp. You know, like you, they couldn't hear what was going on. Likewise, when they played shows as well. Yeah, because same. they're usually playing in some basement or yeah. So that they they really they had an idea of what the songs were you know but they the songs never got to to reach that penultimate stage of being of being perfected mm-hmm. and part of that was we didn't you know we were like oh fuck let's go to a place that has a, a multi-track recorder and uh, book two days we'll book two days two days yeah maybe a third if we want to do an extra mix on something if even we got that far most people were happy with just recording on some you know some borrowed adap machine which revenge of the little shits was essentially recorded in mark chaplin's house while mark chaplin was laid out drunk on a couch did you did you help record no sutton i think did that okay the recordings don't do they do a disservice no there was no i mean there was no real pre-production but if they had have done pre-production and worked out all these little difficult parts that are clearly not executed well on a lot of these Mm -hmm. recordings they could have made a record that would, to this day, fucking bowl people over who had never experienced that era, you know? Especially since, or to me anyway, it's not identifiable as belonging to a certain... It's not a really identifiable as anything. It's like, yeah. I Spy is its own unique punk, hardcore, yeah, not melodic... Punk, not metal, not hardcore, yeah, but, but all just of these them. strange, the strange mix. Yeah. And if you, if you kind of listen to it forensically, the riffs are incredible. You know, there's these awesome riffs mm-hmm. that have all this awesome potential and they kind of get lost in the recording quality or the the execution that, you know, it's the, it's the first time they're hearing them back through a sound system where you can actually tell what's happening. Mm-hmm. But it was, sort, it was sort of the culture of the time, you know, the DIY culture. And then we, both these records. Yeah, there, just, there was an anti-professionalism. And, oh, there definitely was an anti-professionalism ethic going on, which was stupid. And um, at the time... Recess Records in California were putting these out in America. Recess had the same kind of philosophy, you know? Just, yeah, it just doesn't matter. Record them, whatever it sounds like, ha, ha, ha. Mm -hmm. The shittier, the funnier, (laughs) you know? But regardless of that, I think I'm still, still struck by how good the songs are on this record. If you can get past some of the execution and the recording quality, they're fucking unbelievable. Yeah, I think that's the hurdle though, because I have, when I listen to these songs... I'm not, I find myself not actually strictly listening to the songs. It's, it's intertwined with all my memories yeah, I, of the songs and, and seeing them live and feeling that excitement and rush of just seeing a crazy band on stage going yeah. hard. Yeah. I think, I think the hurdle is bigger on the revenge of the little shits, which was the second record they made, which <laughs> clocked in at about 10 minutes long when they were finished it, <laughs> which is again, no, no foresight back then for for anything that's crazy you don't know how long your record's gonna be you, you think you got 10 songs that must be a record and then you have a 10 minute record <laughs> it's yeah. fucking crazy we should also point out that even though Todd plays bass in Propagandy he this he actually played guitar oh yeah he's and I spy he ran he did he, did he write all the songs or did Rary yeah. write some of the songs I think he wrote most I think he wrote almost everything him and James maybe the most and then Rary and uh, Guerrero the rest mm-hmm. but yeah Todd is I mean he's a gifted guitar player gifted songwriter just 
does everything a little bit differently than everybody else on earth. <laughs> yeah. And that's the magic. Yeah. That was, I mean, there's a charm factor here that can go a long way too. Even though I'm, I'm sure to Kowalski, listening back to this, he would love to have a galactic mute button for certain <laughs> sections of these songs, just as I do for our early records, but it's fucking killer. It's fucking, this record is killer. Yeah, it's a, sli- it's a unique slice of time. Yeah. I was so into I Spy, so into I Spy. I would be like sending the demo tapes, you know, I sent them to Fat Mike at Fat Records, like, Paul, this is a fucking slam dunk, man. This is, he's going to put this out for sure. Anybody who hears this, you know, I believed in it so hard. And then Mike's just like, eh, doesn't sound very good. Screaming. I don't know. Which is essentially every record I ever think is good that I send to these bigger record labels. Convinced that they're going to put them out because they'll hear this the same way I do. They don't. They hear it fucking while they're looking at their calculator or something. (laughs) And, uh... And the world is worse for it. The world is worse that for the fact that I Spy didn't get a, a more of a fair shake in terms of putting out these records. I wonder if they properly. have that kind of appeal, though. If with- they would, if they but if they had someone like quote unquote producing right. the records and helping them, you know, say you guys, you've got to spend more than two days making this record, and you got to spend more time on your parts. Yeah, you got to figure them out, uh, not just rush through it. And then be stoked when you have a 10 minute record at the end. You got to plan it out. And obviously we all know that now, but we were so, we had no one to guide us back then. I spy had no, I, the, the people guiding I spy were me. So <laughs> that is, that is a sad state of affairs. Yeah, so they were up shit's Creek from the very start. You know, they had nobody to tell them how to do things better. They just had someone saying, let's do this. It'll be exciting. I, I want to do, I want to do I spy covers. I always have. I guess we fucked the border was an I spy song that never got recorded. Oh really? Yeah. I didn't know that. And the middle part was a rap part. Can you believe that? James was super into rap and he wanted it. He insisted that they put a rap part into the song. And was James going to do the, no, the verse? Todd, Todd was like a rap part. And he said, okay, I'll try. And he, and the middle of fuck the border was originally like a, what? Like a rap more, section. He, he was going to be rap more like in, in terms of rhythm. He or? was rapping. He was trying to appease to James's, desire to have rap wow. in I Spy. They should have got Greg McPherson on there. He could have done the administration rap in the middle he of He could have done that. I would love to see you guys do I Spy covers. You should convince Todd to to sneak one into the set. What well, would you pick? Well, one one I thought of doing is is one that never got recorded, but is it's almost like the second last song on this anthology. It's, only, it's recorded live at the Albert. It's called Business. Great tune. But also... Uh, your face will stay that way. I've always loved that song, mm-hmm. but it's only like fucking 49 seconds long or something like most of those songs were. Appliances and Cars. Yep. Great tune. Remain. Great song. Seamus is Nuts. Unfortunately titled, I'm afraid, but a great song. More than a joke. So we've been going on and on about the songwriting and the, the technical aspects of the recording, but... Yes, we have. This is a band not to be outdone on, on deeply... Pre- I think... You know, people talk about this whole personal is political sort of trope. Oh, God. But this is really, I spy, you know, Todd's lyrics are, they are really the personal is political. Talking about personal experiences around political concepts. And I think this this is also reflected in his lyrics that he writes for Propaganda. But I think it's a unique style. And I know for me, as a youngin, listening to I spy songs, like they had a big impact on me 
in a much different way than, for example, your lyrical stylings, which are a little more, especially at the time, polemical uh, rather than... They were not! Fuck you talking about! You're a fucking idiot! You're a Nazi! Why, do you, why would you say that, you fucking Nazi sympathizer? <laughs> fucking Nazi! Fuck you, Nazi! But would you agree with that assessment? Yes, unfortunately. I don't know. No, not of you. Yep. Yeah, Todd's lyrics. Oh, his, yeah. Yeah. Well, mine weren't that bad. Go no, I'm not saying were, they were bad. Mine were also personal. No, nah, whatever. No, his, I mean, I mean, Todd's a more creative guy than I am in a lot of ways. And he, he see, like I said, he sees the world differently than most. Yeah. And it's a very valuable perspective and it's reflected in the songs. And I think for certain people hearing messages, you know, or ideas or concepts embedded in lyrics you know, in that way, in more of a sort of personal story kind of fashion and just this really honest, self-deprecating, you know, hard on sleeve approach. It can speak to some people maybe where other approaches, you know, would miss them. I don't know. I think it's really valuable. And I think we would be remiss not to talk about the cover art for this album. Yeah. The outrageous, hilarious. Airborne human assholes shitting on the Pope's head. Yeah, that's that's an excellent summary of Todd's own making painting slash collage. collage. Yeah, but yeah, many human flying human asses shitting down on the Pope, uh, including one child. I think they're pretty they're like kids basically. One child's hand placing shit on the Pope's head. Yeah, it has to be seen to be believed. I think it was really something when I had to hand it in to the uh, the guy at the record manufacturer. <laughs> Nervously, Nervously passing it over. Yeah. I actually said, Cam, are you a religious man? <laughs> and thankfully he was not. For when he saw it, uh, he fell out of his chair. Literally. He literally fell out of his chair when he saw it. <laughs> and then was... Himself wondering. Himself wondering, what is going to happen when I hand this over to the, the plant? Yeah. To have this manufactured. <sighs> Fuck. But it all... He, 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 he said, this might not get printed. Yeah. And he actually, he actually now, this has triggered a memory of him saying that he wouldn't use his usual printer, which was based in Manitoba and, okay. and was yeah. a Christian right. organization. And he would, he started using a, a different one for our records that were more controversial, <laughs> in real, which became many of our records after yeah. that. So yeah. Good guy, Cam. Well, going out of his way to yeah. get our records made. Cam, if you're out there, come pick us up in a limo and take us to Delicious Vegetarian. So what's the verdict on this? Stands the test of time. Uh, to me, it does. To one me, of, it does because... One because, of my favorite G7 releases, I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, one of my favorite local bands of all time. We got yeah. to put out the record. To me, it still feels like a special thing that I was able to see those yeah, guys witness. play yeah. play live a was, bunch of times. I Spy was a magical thing. Mm-hmm. And we stole Todd and we killed the magic. How do you feel about that? Great. I love it. Of course I love it. It's something so much more oh, than money. Just stand relative to what we don't belong here. Do you really think that you're the truthful one you want? If I'm sucking weak, the trolley won't be thrown away. It won't be thrown away. Words. Cause I don't wanna play 
shout out before we go, Chris, to a website called Reasonable Vegan at rvgn.org. This is created by friend of the show, Paul Fox. Skeptical views on uh, veganism and science and other things. Pretty cool. Check it out. Seems reasonable to me. Thanks for tuning in for episode 27 of Escape Velocity Radio. To read show notes, join the discussion, please don't, or listen to our archives, please don't, visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you like the show and you want to support us, please leave us a review on iTunes, share the episode on social media, or you can also make a donation via the donate link on our website. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud by searching Escape Velocity Radio, or you can send us feedback via email at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com. This is the end of the year. This is the end of 2014. We're not going to see you again until 2015. That is fucking crazy. Merry Christmas, everybody, and see you in Texas or Florida, wherever the fuck it is I'm going to be after Christmas. Oh, 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 oh. Just like a fly says that time